0: Hello, and welcome to The Historian's Cut. By the first decade of the 17th century, Shakespeare had already written Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, and many others of his greatest plays, and he was approaching the end of his career when he started work on King Lear, his study on the waning of power and interfamilial strife. In 1985, Akira Kurosawa was already lauded as one of Japan's greatest filmmakers, with films to his names such as Rashomon, Throne of Blood, and Seven Samurai, when he made his adaptation of the same play. Shakespeare's play is set in a mythic ancient Britain. Kurosawa chose as his setting the similarly contested and mythologized Sengoku period of Japanese history, a period of near-constant civil war dominated by warring samurai clans. Kurosawa called his adaptation Ran, literally chaos or turmoil in Japanese but what can Iran tell us about adapting shakespeare to screen with me to answer this question our modern historian dr morris brody our resident cinema historian dr sam manning and today's guest expert nick pierce english graduate publisher and formerly part of the bbc's team to spot new talent that can be adapted to screen welcome all of you
1: hello hello now,
0: sam first of all could you summarize the plot challenging task because it is uh it does run under two and a half hours the film but could you do your best for listeners who have not seen ran and could you also tell us a little bit about its release and its reception please
2: yeah absolutely phil so i'll just give a basic outline of the of the plot so uh it starts with 70 year old ahida who decides to retire from uh, the leadership of his clan uh, and he des- divides his three castles between his sons taro jiro and Siboro. Uh, and he believes that this will create a long-lasting peace. This falls apart, firstly, when Saburo criticizes the plan uh, and is then disinherited and banished by his father. The two remaining brothers fall into infighting and then and then civil war, partly influenced by their wives, whose families were massacred previously by, by Hidetara. It then continues into various different forms of fighting and, and civil war. Sibiro comes back into the picture, naturally things don't go to, to plan uh, and the film deals with themes such as madness, greed, spite, pain, uh, mutilation, death and the collapse of social order, uh, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about today. In terms of the film's uh, release and reception, it was the most expensive film made in Japan at, at that time uh, and it was released there in 1985 uh, and then a year later in the in the UK. In terms of its reputation, critics you know, praised it at the time, particularly for its use of colour and, and expressionism. Um, it won an Oscar for Best Costume Design and also won BAFTAs for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Makeup Artist. There were some negative reviews at the time that criticised its theatricality. Some people said it was one-dimensional, but they were really in a minority and its reputation has really grown uh, over time. So, for instance, it was it was re-released in 2016 as part of a BFI season commemorating the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. At that time, many people said it was one of the greatest adaptations of, of Shakespeare. And in 2018, uh, BBC Culture polled 209 critics in 43 countries to find the best films in world cinema. What they meant by that was any film made in a language other than English, and Bran came in 79th place. Although I should probably also note that Of Kurosawa's other films, Rashomon came in fourth place and Seven Samurai came in first place. So it's
0: very well regarded, but perhaps slightly less than some of his other films. Thanks very much for that, Sam. And I suppose maybe one thing to point out before we move on is that this film is available for members of BFI Player. Is that the right name for this, Sam? Uh, Yeah, that's right. If you subscribe to BFI Player, you can watch it there. Okay, thanks very much, Sam. Uh, So, Nick, I'm going to turn to you first. Before we get into the meat of your answer, the first recorded performance of King Lear was 1606. For just a bit of context to help us navigate through the rest of the episode, could you tell us a bit about 1606 in terms of where, firstly, Shakespeare was in his career at that point, and then also... A sketch the political events his work may have been reflecting on in, in king Lear.
3: yeah uh sure in terms of shakespeare by this stage he's a, a well-established playwright you know one of the most successful playwrights in england and indeed by that point his acting company had a royal patent so they they became the king's men which kind of meant that the, the acting company was kind of you know like officially endorsed by and a company in the employ of the king king james the first of england so yeah certainly it's fair to say shakespeare was at a very good place in his career the country however in rather a different place it's quite a turbulent period politically king james's court had a reputation the king and his court had a reputation of being somewhat capricious There were reports of favouritism and James running roughshod over Parliament and just doing whatever he wanted, or at least, you know, these were some charges levelled against him by those who were dissatisfied with his rule. Obviously, one can debate how fair and accurate they are, but certainly that was a, a current in the air around his rule at this time. And also, of course, there were political events such as the year previously most notably the gunpowder plot. So there was both a, a climate of kind of anxiety about Catholic terrorism, but also kind of anti-Catholic feeling and anti-Catholic propaganda. So, so all in all, a fairly tense period, I think it's fair to say, in English history and English society. And I think you see this reflected in the play.
0: In the introduction, we alluded to some of the, the plays that had preceded King Lear you mentioned that he is at maybe the kind of the height of his powers in terms of kind of status as a businessman as well as a playwright over the course of his career do you see trends in the kinds of plays that he's writing and if so where would you situate King Lear in any particular trend?
3: Um, Well I guess as is the case with most artists he'd cut his teeth with I guess you would say, more conventional material and more conventional treatments of material in his earlier work. Still, obviously, very distinctive and very accomplished, but his earlier plays, they kind of stick within the boundaries of genre. They're more easily delineated into, you know, kind of comedies, tragedies, histories, etc. Whereas by the point of King Lear, which has been kind of seen, you know, it's a tragedy, and it's been kind of seen as a transitional work for him in that it's on the cusp or even is an example of his kind of mature work when he turns towards what have come to be known critically as his problem plays, these kind of late career works where he seems like a lot of our kind of major artists in their autumn years, including Kurosawa as well. You could say they, their works get more obsessed with certain preoccupations and themes and less interest in conventional dramaturgy less interest in getting an, an audience on board written seemingly more for the author themselves than for an audience kind of working through problems and ideas that the artist is fascinated by and so yeah I guess that's what you see in King Lee. you see a transition away from so much of a public artist towards more of a private artist. You know, and it is often said that his later works often kind of feel like they were written just to be read more than to be performed almost because they are so dense and um strange.
0: Thanks Nick. I think you've you've sketched the context really well there and I hopefully we'll be able to touch on particularly the aspect of it being a, a problem play and the relative points in their career, Shakespeare and Kurosawa Um, hopefully we'll be able to pick that up later on in in the episode first question which is about kurosawa and shakespeare's both of their youth of the the mythic past could you nick maybe just sketch a little bit the period that kurosawa is referring to in ran and what it means to him and maybe give some kind of comparison to Shakespeare's use of the past and what that might be meaning to Shakespeare when he's writing King Lear.
3: Yeah, so if we start with the play, King Lear, so it's kind of set in basically a pretty much kind of fictional kind of ancient Britain, pre-Roman Britain, and Lear is a kind of mythical king figure from that period who may or may not have really existed, but basically the play is an invention, drawing on earlier sources, both historical sources and then also possibly earlier play versions. And one of the reasons Shakespeare probably set it in a distant past, if you accept the interpretation that this play does have a political subtext, is that obviously it's a way... In a period when saying something not very nice about the king can get you thrown in prison or uh, having your head chopped off, it's a way of hedging your bets and staying safe. If you set something in the distant past, it kind of gives you an out if anyone accuses you of slagging off the the current monarch or making any kind of critique of the English court. So there's certainly that aspect to it,
0: I would say. Would that have applied to Kurosawa as well?
3: No, I think Kurosawa would not have had the same issues to deal with in terms of, you know, he didn't have to fear for his life or security by levelling critiques of Japanese society. You know, the worst he could receive is like a a bad review. I, I think his reasons for setting it in the past are more to do with... And Shakespeare does it for this reason as well. It's kind of contrasting the past with the present and also, more in Kurosawa's case, kind of reflecting on on how aspects of the past bleed into the present. So whereas Shakespeare's play is kind of set in a mythical past, using that as just a forum to explore ideas in almost like a kind of timeless way, Kurosawa is more explicitly concerned with the past as past, I would say it's set in a more determined concrete historical period you know the sengoku period it's pretty well documented and it was a very particular time a lot is known about and even though the story is not historically accurate it seems that he has he's wanting to say more concrete things about what that period and certain of its ideas how they've bled in kind of negative ways into 20th century Japanese society.
0: So he chose the Sengoku period. What why do you think he chose that one? And could you maybe give an example of what you describe as the bleeding of that period into the period that Kurosawa was writing?
3: Yeah, so I think you, you kind of you have to kind of start, I think, by saying that Kurosawa came of age in kind of post-Second World War, and obviously that was a deeply traumatic time for Japan. A lot of the Assumptions and the worldview that Japan had operated on politically prior to the Second World War, the militaristic, nationalist, right-wing mindset that Japan had had prior and during the Second World War, obviously that was that was kind of completely upturned and demolished by what occurred during the Second World War, and so afterwards kind of revisionist attitudes to Japan's past became very prevalent among younger liberal-minded Japanese like Kurosawa and one of the um, the most kind of salient examples of this is the samurai the Japanese warlord and the Japanese samurai these figures who had been kind of idolized prior to the second world war as kind of emblems of a very macho nationalist right-wing Japan these figures suddenly became much more questionable because, obviously, they'd led Japan to ruin. And throughout Kurosawa's career, you see him again and again interrogating the idea of the samurai, whether that's in Seven Samurai or Rashomon or Throne of Blood. And that culminates in Ran. And so by choosing the Sengoku period, he's choosing a period of civil war, of constant battle between various warlords and their bands of samurai and so he's picked a period that kind of exemplifies what he perceived as those ills of that kind of militaristic strain in japanese thought and culture and how that bled from that period into early 20th century japanese thinking so yeah i think that's why i think that's why he picked it as a period yeah so i guess the, the difference i would say is that is that shakespeare He's using the distant past in order to say things about the present, or at least one can argue that, whereas Kurosawa is equally reflecting on Japan's past and its present. It's much more past-facing, ran, whereas King Lear isn't really. I mean, you know, King Lear is kind of nominally set in the distant past, but it's not really what you'd call... It's not like an historical play. It's not really trying to convince you of, you know, its historical accuracy or, you know, like give you a real kind of insight into what life was like for ancient Britons. It's just using that as a backdrop in order to explore ideas that were contemporary to Shakespeare's moment when he's writing it.
0: Before we maybe brought in Simon Morris for for the next question, I, I just thought it would be good to share with the listeners one of the things that well that I read during the preparation for this episode, which is that Japanese kamikaze pilots were photographed wearing samurai swords as they were getting into aeroplanes. I think the samurai swords were taken off after the camera had taken the picture because it was a bit inconvenient to have the samurai <laughs> uh, sword um, in the cockpit. But I think this, this shows just how... A, that the samurai period and kind of iconography of the samurai was used by the regime during the Second World War and possibly mm. some of the ideas that Kurosawa was reacting against, In um, at least in Ran, I'm not sure if he had exactly the same kind of attitudes towards the samurai in The Seven Samurai and um, in Throne of Blood. But I'm, I'm going to bring in Sam or Morris. Would you like to take the next question?
1: Sure, yeah. Nick, thanks thanks for that introduction there. I suppose looking at the kind of comparison of, of Ran and King Lear, of Kurosawa's approach and Shakespeare's approach, one of the main differences in terms of the, the plot, I suppose, between the play and the film are the, the fact that um, in terms of the intergenerational tensions between the main characters, in Ran it's between the, the sons and in King Lear it's uh, between the daughters. And the kind of way that the uh, the kingdom is divided. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, on why Kurosawa chose to change the gender of the, the children in, in, in RAN as opposed to sticking more closely to, to King Lear? I mean
3: I, I, I suspect it has something to do with cultural difference that maybe because he wanted it to have a kind of a more of a sense of historical verisimilitude, maybe, than Shakespeare was concerned with. He thought it was more plausible that power would be descending in in this this patriarchal way, and maybe he thought that it reinforced a, a certain deconstruction of a patriarchal ethos that the film is exploring the fact that you have you have this kind of old man who you know he's a pretty brutal figure and kind of domineering, and it's very apparent that he's used violence and tyranny to impose his will on his kingdoms and maybe he thought you know it it made more sense and is kind of maybe visually clearer to show that that corrupt patriarchal power perpetuating itself by having it be like a series of men on screen all doing that but but then you know I know it's been kind of said that he by doing that maybe it's less interesting than in Lear where you have the three daughters.
0: This is exactly what I was going to say Nick so what do you think Shakespeare was trying to say by having the kingdom divided between three daughters because this I suppose would be just as unusual in Shakespeare's time as in the Sengoku period.
3: You know you can speculate that perhaps Shakespeare was reflecting a greater degree of misogyny in his own period in that in his play Lear is not so much Of a villain, his Lear is more of a just a fool, really. And it's kind of suggested that in that, that play's kind of about, you know, like how order can be usurped and devolve into chaos. And, you know, so you can kind of argue the fact that he's already dividing his his kingdom between daughters is a kind of sexist hint on the part of Shakespeare that he's already hinting, foreshadowing in the early part of the play, like, oh, this is going to go badly wrong. You know, there's something unnatural about this Perhaps that's being unfair to Shakespeare, but maybe that's why. Whereas in, in Ran and Kurosawa's film, Hidetora is much more of a reprehensible figure, really. He's much more responsible for his downfall than I would say Lear in the play is. He's kind of bred the environment for his downfall, Hidetora. And I think maybe Kurosawa thought that having the power invested largely in men, kind of made that more plain. It does seem very much like an allegory for Japan in the 20th century. And obviously, early 20th century Japan, it was a very male-dominated society. So maybe he just didn't really think that what he wanted to convey politically in the film would really work if it was three daughters instead of three sons. However, to counterbalance that, one of the most powerful characters in the film who has the most agency is the lady Kaidi character the daughter-in-law who is scheming to take power so it isn't the case that he removes all female agency from the story she's one of the most important characters kind of a little bit of a lady macbeth character also kind of obviously she's kind of like a female equivalent of edmund from lear she's kind of half lady macbeth half edmund that's that's perhaps why. I mean, that's a lot of speculation, but that's probably what I would think.
2: So one of the things when I was um, kind of reading about Kurosawa is that I know that a lot of people in Japan have criticised him for almost being too Western in his in his style of filmmaking, and I think they see that he is kind of straying too far from you know Japanese traditions of of filmmaking. But but from what you're saying, it almost seems like the opposite like he's gone to quite an effort to make this very rooted in japanese society um you know just wondering what, what your thoughts on that word w- would you agree with his critics
3: or i know that yeah that that has been a criticism that's been leveled at him in the past i mean i don't know if it is so much now because i guess maybe people might think the argument was a bit kind of weirdly essentialist it kind of suggests there is such a thing as an essential japanese way of making a film or whatever But I know that that has been levelled at him in the past. And it's certainly true that he was influenced by Western, you know, Hollywood filmmaking, and what have you, particularly like John Ford, the famous Hollywood filmmaker, was a big influence on Kurosawa. But I really, I don't really get how someone could look at something like Throne of Blood or Ran in particular. These films which are clearly, really heavily influenced by, Japanese theatre traditions, no and kabuki theatre, with the very stylized, almost monstrous makeup, that very stylized acting style, and those kind of very locked off, austere camera shots, kind of minimal movement where everything's within the frame. I don't know how people can look at that and just kind of think, oh, oh, how very Western of Kurosawa. I do find that kind of a, a strange criticism in some ways. I don't know. I kind of I kind of get where they're coming from in some ways. Maybe some of his films are more western than others. I don't really see it with Ran. That seems like a pretty through and through Japanese movie to me. I don't know. I guess maybe they mean cuz he's using western sources as well maybe cuz obviously it's a, based on a Shakespeare story,
0: but Nick, I think this seems a good moment to kind of ask about Shakespeare in Japan. Was was Shakespeare popular in Japan? Ran isn't the only film based on a, on a Shakespeare film that Kurosawa made. Do you think that there is something that's attracted Japanese people at that time to Shakespeare, or was it much more specific to the actual plays themselves that Kurosawa chose, that there were actually things in King Lear and things in Macbeth that he felt he, he wanted to explore?
3: Yeah, so the history of Shakespeare in Japan... It's quite long. Uh, I'll try kind of like the abridged version. Basically, it's kind you know. I guess the first thing to say is that obviously, for a long time, from kind of the mid seventeenth century, Japan was closed off from most of the rest of the world, deliberately closed itself off from foreign countries in order to halt the spread and influence of Christianity. So for quite a while western influence and you know cultural imports into japan it, you know it just didn't happen it was a very insular culture but then the Meiji restoration in 1868 which was when basically japan starting to open up again and began this process of modernization which basically westernization having been pressured by outside influences like america and also seeing how they'd fallen behind technologically and culturally it hadn't really advanced very much in a long time japan because it was so cut off from the kind of late 19th century onwards particularly amongst intellectual elites in japan the kind of upper echelons of japanese society taking on board western influences and western culture was the in thing to do if we want japan to become a modern prosperous successful society we need to imbibe all of this western art and culture and that will help us to grow this is kind of like a prevalent feeling in japan and unsurprisingly enough the writer who was taken as being a, like most emblematic of western culture was shakespeare and so in the late 19th early 20th century shakespeare became very popular not his plays so much that didn't come until a bit later but to start with what it was is that there were adaptations in story or play form of the Shakespeare stories often taken from storybook versions of his plays that had been written by um people like um Charles and Mary Lamb their tales from Shakespeare's so like adaptations of loose versions of the Shakespeare stories but basically this meant that Shakespeare started to filter through Japanese culture.
0: So a reasonably long history of Shakespeare in Japan, at least in the 20th century perspective, you know, why King Lear and why Macbeth fought Kurosawa? Do you see similar themes in other of Kurosawa's films? one has nothing to do with Shakespeare, but then they picked up and elaborated even more in Throne the Blood and, uh, and Ram.
3: I would say that, I mean, when you look at the plays he was drawn to uh, in terms of adapting, I mean, it's, the tra- it's tragedies. He did three adaptations to varying degrees of faithfulness of three Shakespeare tragedies, Macbeth in Throne of Blood, Hamlet in The Bad Sleep Well, and King Lear in Ran. So I guess he was drawn to those because Kurosawa famously had a pretty gloomy outlook on life pretty nihilistic temperament he didn't see an awful lot to be optimistic about in terms of humanity's propensity for survival he was quite ready to see the worst in how people will conduct themselves and particularly the quest for power at all else and also vengeance how vengeance corrupts and becomes an obsession And then also a theme which recurs in Shakespeare's work and which also recurs in Kurosawa's work is dreams. The idea of how you you can't live without dreams, but you kind of can't live with them either. That dreams help give meaning and purpose to life, but they can also be illusory and treacherous. And how they kind of expose man in Kurosawa's eyes as ultimately a quite foolish animal.
1: Nick, you mentioned the idea of power and how Kurosawa was interested in dealing with that. I thought it was interesting hearing that Kurosawa came up with the idea of Ran before he'd actually become familiar with King Lear. And then once he had the rough idea of what he wanted to do, he then found out about King Lear, and then this allowed him to adapt into it. You also mentioned the kind of idea that Heditora is much more responsible for his downfall in in many ways. He's got a much darker backstory than, than Lear. And I was wondering what you think, any kind of, how can we take a, take a morality lesson from the play? Heditora, does he suffer because of his past actions or because he was trying to control the future?
3: Yeah, I'd say Ran is much more a product of 20th century, and certainly like a second half of the 20th century conception of power and what power can do to people and how it can lead to their downfall, than the play King Lear. And I think that's kind of seen, yeah, most clearly in the fact that Hidusora is given this backstory of having perpetrated what we would call war crimes now, and that isn't mentioned in the Shakespeare play. The idea that a ruler could be entirely morally compromised and overthrown by their own moral failings. A, a Jacobean would have not really been able to conceive of that. But obviously, for someone in kuasara's particular historical moment, after the evils of the Second World War, that is how a lot of people, Kuasara included, saw a lot of historical figures of the recent past. Yeah, it seems that like we're supposed to come away from the film feeling much more that Torah is responsible, at least in part, for what has occurred to him. He's not just the victim of an indifferent, chaotic, hostile universe like King Lear in the play. He He is an agent of his own destruction as well.
2: We've talked quite a lot there about how some of the... I suppose the themes of the film have translated from Shakespeare in England um, into 20th century uh, Japan. I was just going to ask about one character in particular. So, for she's he's the fool or, or court jester who joins Hidatori during exile. I mean, is that a kind of character that was prevalent in, in Japanese culture? or Is that something that has come completely from Shakespeare and, and kind of theatrical traditions in England?
3: uh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no i mean it's um yeah i i don't know if there's any comparable tradition for that within japanese theater yeah i mean certainly that's that's a kind of stock character in elizabethan and jacobean theater The the kind of traditional role of the fool or the clown in plays obviously was just to provide light comic relief, whereas obviously Shakespeare is deploying him more as, you know, he's kind of central to the philosophical ideas of the play, that, you know, that kind of everything is meaningless and there is no sense or order to anything, which is what Lear learns during the course of the play. And that's embodied in the fool. His foolishness is actually a form of wisdom. He recognises how senseless everything is.
0: Um, yeah, I have to I say, know. at the risk of sounding heretical, I'm not such a massive fan of The Fool in King Lear, at least trying to read the play is preparation for, for, for this episode. I think. <laughs> <laughs> the, the scenes with The Fool, I, I was really getting a sense of King Lear being on the heath in the storm, and he has to put up with this guy just commenting on everything that he has to say.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would say that the fool is probably my least favourite character in the, in the film. And I, I think perhaps I thought that was because it just didn't kind of culturally translate into a Japanese saying. But maybe for it's just because he's not a very good character.
1: I think that's a bit unkind. You know, he uh, sticks by his, his master and through thick and thin, you know, he's uh, basically the only person who uh, still supports him. I don't think he's that bad of character. Not very funny, perhaps. But, uh... um,
0: Nick, one thing that occurred to me while I was reading the book and watching the film is that... So I think you mentioned right at the beginning that we were right in the very early stages of James the First Reign. Is that right, when... King Lear was written. And it does also seem to me that one of the many things that King Lear and Brown is about is about transitions of power from one regime to another. And I think maybe our modern listeners will know more about the traumatic regime change that Kurosawa had lived through, see, uh, growing up just after the Second World War in Japan. But also the last years of Elizabeth's reign, I believe can also be viewed as quite a traumatic time for the citizens of England not knowing who will succeed her and that causing quite a lot of trauma in the psyche of the nation so I just wondered if you had yourself reflected on how these two experiences of two men might have influenced their portrayal of of this particular theme of regime change and transitions of power
3: um yeah I think so as I yeah kind of laid out the start there was like a kind of general anxiety at this time in england because obviously yeah with james coming to the throne obviously that created a new nation in effect england and scotland becoming one
0: which which james was very keen on actually wasn't he um... yeah
3: but and obviously that does seem to be in the air the general like air of the play the potential for error and catastrophe in these transitions of power and these new political alliances and what have you. That all seems to be feeding into the anxiety of the play. And it has been argued and interpreted because the play was possibly, or you know, this isn't beyond doubt, but it's possible that it's first or one of its earliest performances was at the court of King James, that it's kind of a cautionary tale for the new crown. In times of great political uncertainty, you have to be very careful not to fall prey to hubris or narcissism or whatever, you know, the kind of things that the character of Lear allows himself to lose sight of the big picture because he's more obsessed with his daughters singing his praises. He kind of allows his narcissism and his willfulness to let his power to be usurped because he's more concerned with these trivial matters there does appear to be a very topical political undercurrent to the play.
1: Nick, one one thing I know that uh, Shakespeare, or one theme that Shakespeare wouldn't have been able to touch upon, which perhaps Kurosawa was able to, was the idea of of religion or the, the lack of religion, the kind of idea of the, the death of God, which is something I picked up on with the uh, Surimuru character. The blind man who's the brother of one of the wives of the, the three brothers and how he and his, his sister are basically the only two religious characters in the film with their buddhism and it seemed a fairly explicit trope at the end of the film where uh, Surumu drops his picture of the buddha which is supposed to be his protection he's waiting for his sister to come and return to him but she's been killed He's standing on the edge of a precipice of his own ruined castle. It's very archetypal almost. The idea of him representing humanity left to, to wander the world without the protection of God or of religion. I'm wondering if, if you know anything about if that's something that Kurosawa was particularly interested in. Was he a religious man or I mean, what can we take from that representation of, of the blind man?
3: Yes, yeah, so I think that's right that Kurosawa is at the end of the film, you know, with the blind man poised on the edge of a precipice. This is a pretty overt metaphor for kind of man in a godless, meaningless universe. Yeah, I think that's very explicit. And I mean, this is something that you see in a lot of Kurosawa's work, this sense of man's smallness and the futility of existence. Yeah, he had a pretty bleak worldview. I mean, you know, there are traces of a kind of buddhism in his work there's a kind of a persistent interest and respect for the natural world but that's as kind of far as i think he ever goes towards any kind of spirituality it's just it's just a sense of there being a natural world an order outside of human experience that will prevail and persist and you kind of get this in ran there's these constant cutaways to the cloud formations and what have you. He's kind of using that in different ways. There's it's kind of like the metaphorical sense in which is like a gathering storm, which is obviously referring to what's going on geopolitically in the story. But then also it just seems like Kurosawa was saying, look at all these ridiculous people. This is us. Don't we see how indifferent nature is? to our little squabbles it just kind of it goes on without us and doesn't really care and and we'll be kind of gone in an instant.
0: I'm conscious that we're getting fairly near to the end of the episode and we did promise our listeners at the beginning that we would address the theme of King Lear as a a problem play. In the notes that you have provided us with Nick uh, you've mentioned that in I don't know, I'm going to make up some figures here, but kind of Macbeth has been turned into a film a hundred times. Romeo and Juliet has been turned into a film a thousand times. Uh, I'm, I'm playing fast and loose with your notes here, Nick. Uh, sorry about this. Uh, <laughs> um, Kit Lear is kind of, uh, it's been adapted to film relatively infrequently. I'm curious to know, you know, what, why is it difficult to, to translate to a film? And maybe compare it to, for example, Macbeth. I think kind of Remy and Juliet's kind of fairly obvious. But why is Macbeth easy, in inverted commas, and King Lear hard?
3: Uh, I guess there's, there's probably lots of reasons. On a very kind of crude level, it probably just has something to do with the fact that Lear is very long. And whereas Macbeth is pretty streamlined, pretty basic story that you can do in like 90 minutes, King Lear there's a lot more characters, there's a lot more plot to deal with. Equally, it's like with Hamlet and his later plays, it's much more concerned with ideas than just giving, you know, a punchy three-act story. And so that's probably less enticing to people who finance film projects, the difficulty of the material and the length of the material, and the fact that it's not really a play you can do on the cheap. It demands large sets and what have you. All of that probably means that it's somewhat impractical for most filmmakers who aren't as ambitious and arguably obsessive as someone like Kurosawa. So there's that. But then also you could argue that maybe it's to do with the thematic differences between the plays in that Even though Macbeth is a tragedy, it has a fairly Christian message and perspective and a degree of optimism, which you don't have in King Lear, by which I mean that, you know, Macbeth does something very bad, i.e. he murders someone and then he murders lots more people in order to cover up for the first murder and maintain the power that he's got through the first murder. But he gets his comeuppance for that. He's driven mad by guilt. And eventually he is killed himself. It's kind of like reinforcing the sense, you know, that bad deeds lead to bad ends, which is maybe a more universally readily consumed message. It's not particularly troubling, particularly for like a kind of mass market medium like film. It isn't as disturbing as Lear, whose central idea is that bad things happen to people for no real reason, you know, and obviously his daughter. The good daughter, you know, the most virtuous character in the play, she ends up dead through no fault of her own. And it's, you know, it's just kind of like an accident, almost her death, just like a quirk of fate. And that kind of existential meaninglessness that that play explores is probably much more troubling and much less the kind of thing that lots of people want to see while they're
1: eating their popcorn in a cinema on a Friday night. Next, I was just wondering what uh, you think makes a good Shakespeare adaptation, if you've got a, a favourite Shakespeare adaptation, perhaps?
3: Uh, personally, and I know some people think this is quite sacrilegious take on Shakespeare or whatever, but I tend to prefer Shakespeare either when I read it or when I see films of it to stage productions of Shakespeare, even though, obviously, they were written as plays. And I think that's because... The problem I find with a lot of stage productions of Shakespeare now is that they treat the material with such reverence that they kind of kill it stone dead. It's like treated very pompously. I've seen like Royal Shakespeare Company productions, what have you? And even though, you know, like you can't really fault the production values or the quality of the acting. I don't know. To me, it's just like every word is lingered on so much by the actors. They treat it like this kind of sacred text and it kind of just it makes it feel so stuffy. I think sometimes this museum piece has to be kind of like lovingly wrapped in cotton wool and you can't possibly disturb it in any way. And it can make it feel a bit lifeless. Whereas the, the thing about the best film adaptations of Shakespeare, I'd say, is that they're usually made by people who seemingly don't have that same... They're not as precious about it. Ran is a good example, with obviously Kurosawa playing pretty fast and loose with the particulars of the story. And even, you know, I know he's given interviews where he kind of said there's aspects of the play that he doesn't really like. Like, he didn't like the fact that the characters didn't have backstories, that Lear isn't really clarified as a character, and obviously he is more in the film. Yeah, it's kind of like... I think the Shakespeare adaptations that work best are the ones where the filmmaker doesn't have any qualms about pulling the material apart and just using the bits of it that they want to kind of do their own thing. And and funnily enough, I think that's, in a sense, that's kind of more faithful to... I mean, obviously, it's impossible to know, but I kind of think that if he were to bring Shakespeare into the present day with the time machine, he would kind of recognise a kindred instinct in that because... It's well known that in Elizabethan Jacobean Theatre, it was a pretty scrappy kind of makeshift thing where there was a lot more improvisation. Obviously, the audience would interject and the actors might respond and that might kind of affect the way things happened on stage and what have you. Things would be rewritten all the time to take account of different actors taking the parts. So, you know, it was much more, it wasn't treated with the kid gloves that a lot of modern theatre directors feel compelled to treat a Shakespeare play with.
0: Again, something else that may or may not have been in your notes, Nick, but I think that this is the time to mention it now. There was a previous play of King Lear, or at least audiences would have been familiar with the story, I, I understand, but in the version that was most well-known at the time, Cordelia doesn't die and neither does and neither does King Lear. So that's kind of a prime example of Shakespeare, I suppose, kind of you know listening to what the story said to him and deciding that actually, you know, in my play, uh, I'm going to kill Cordelia off in the last act, and that this was something I believe that was particularly shocking about the play because it just went completely against the audiences' expectations about what was going to happen. By twisting the, the source material and people's expectations, not being precious about the material, he actually had a really quite sensational, dramatic impact in his play.
3: Yeah, although probably worth mentioning that for a long time, it was not a particularly well-regarded Shakespeare play by audiences, but you know, it wasn't very popular. And then subsequently, it just came to be seen as a kind of gloomy, depressing play. And it kind of fell out of favour until the 19th century, You know, which again probably feeds into why there have been fewer film adaptations of it, is that its reputation has had more ups and downs than, say, something like Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth, which have pretty much remained consistently popular in one form or another but yeah King Lear has always had a weirder kind of more shaded reputation and I think that is because it is a it's a pretty weird play it's, it's a pretty strange beast
0: you have already partly answered this question Nick by saying uh, forget about the Royal Shakespeare Company we should just watch She's the Man essentially that was what I got from, uh, from, from, what, from what you said just then
1: we all know what Bill's favourite adaptation is yeah. that.
0: but um, we've asked you the question, you've answered it in the long version but could you just kind of uh, wrap it up now in, in one or two sentences what can Rand tell us about adapting Shakespeare for screen
3: yeah what it, what it should tell you about how to do it well is, I think, precisely what I was saying before. Don't be afraid to just pull the play apart and interrogate those things about it that you find interesting or that you find stimulating. Don't feel hidebound to do the whole thing top to bottom. Preserve it in amber and just do like a Royal Shakespeare Company film version because then you'll just end up with something that feels very lifeless, probably.
0: Sorry, sorry. Nick, do you have anything else?
3: No, no. I think yeah. You I'm want to, that.
0: you know, do some more Royal Shakespeare Company bashing? Before.
3: <laughs> 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 yeah. Sorry to anyone from the Royal Shakespeare Company if you if you happen to chance upon this podcast. No offense. I'm I'm being a bit harsh for effect you know no company. it's, it's, obviously it's too a too late thing. now you yeah, it's too late now you <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
3: I wouldn't wanna yeah. yeah. It's a good obviously it's a good thing. And the Globe the Globe Theatre is cool. I like the Globe Theatre. Maybe don't feel the need to over pronunciate every uh every syllable. Oh every he's word. he's coming back
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well uh thank you very much Nick Pierce, Sam Manning and Morris Brody. We look forward to doing another episode soon of the Historian's Cut. See you then.
2: Cheerio. Bye. Bye.